Hello and welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. I'm your host, David Frizzell, and in this episode, it's a topic we've never covered before directly on the pod, money, or more specifically, how to stop worrying about money. My guest is Jackie Clark. Jackie is eminently qualified to steer us towards a world in which we no longer have to worry about the dollars. She's had a big, long career as a chartered accountant and as an executive with companies like Deloitte, as well as a bunch of other roles. But most interestingly, I think, is the work she's done over three decades working with high net worth individuals and families to manage their wealth. So how many of us worry about money? What are the most common mistakes we make? And of course, what are the tried and tested steps we can take to eliminate the money worry in our life? I hope you enjoy my conversation with Jackie Clark. Jackie Clark, welcome to the Team Guru podcast. Thanks, David. I'm really pleased to be here. Great to have you, Jackie. You know what? I think we're up to just over 200 episodes of the Team Guru podcast. We have never done a podcast directly about money. You bring a brand new topic to us. Your book is called Stop Worrying About Money. Start planning now to secure your financial future. I reckon you've got a whole bunch of people interested in listening to this right from the start. What a terrific topic you've got. Isn't it just? Yeah, look, we took a bit of time to get this right, but I think one of the things that I've learned over my life, I've worried about money over my life, and I know how to fix that. And I think the most important thing is that I share that with a whole lot of people. Yeah, I'm going to ask you later to describe the quantum of the problem through society and, and the kind of effect it has on people. But before we get to that, Jackie, tell us, how did you land on this? How did you find your way to writing this book and doing the work that you do now? What was the path and what's the mission? Yeah, well, that's a pretty loaded question. But yeah. but to be honest, I had well, a bit of background. You know, I'd spent 30 years in professional services. I'm a chartered accountant. And I was not long out of deciding to end the partnership I was in at Deloitte after 20 years, which is a really big call. A lot of people would say a very gutsy move. And so I engaged somebody, an executive and person. Yeah, yeah. I engaged an executive and personal coach, somebody who I'd known many years ago who I enjoyed working with. And I was working through, you know, what I would consider quite a transformative, quite a transformative process with her. And I was thinking, you know, I hate to sound like, you know, like everyone's got a book in them, but I just had so much I wanted to share. And she said, well, I think you should write the book. And I thought, and it was, it really gravitated towards me because throughout my career, I have, it's no secret that I have advised some of Australia's wealthiest families. However, it's easy for somebody to say, what do you know? But I've really lived the money story. I've made every cent that I've earned. I lost everything when I turned 40 and I had to rebuild from that place, which was pretty tough as somebody who's a chartered accountant. And I had to raise a pretty big family. So I guess I've, I've learned the hard way. So I have a lot of lessons and stories to share. But also throughout my career, I've basically, notwithstanding advising a whole lot of really wealthy people, the people I've really helped is everyone else. And so the people who came and knocked on my door seeking advice were the people I worked with, friends of friends, colleagues, who felt that, you know, one of the things I do certainly is get into the personal stuff with people. So um, being able to help people out at a deep level, you know, peel back the onion, multiple layers on their money story, which is what I try to unpack in the book. 
it's been written about you that you are Australia's best kept money secret. That's a pretty good line to have said about you. What do you think they're getting at? Well, well, actually, I guess secret is that it is a secret. The people that I advise like to keep it secret. They like to keep you to themselves. And privacy is probably the number one thing. So what I or the way I've helped people doesn't get shared. You know, we keep it very private. So I think that's partly where it comes from. Plus, when you work with just a small percentage of very wealthy people as well, it perhaps my advice was isolated in a public way. My advice was isolated there, which is why best kept, I guess, is the, the right expression. Well, there is some appeal to asking you all about really wealthy individuals and how they go about managing yeah. their money. It's interesting in the same reason gossip is interesting, in the same way gossip's interesting, but it's probably not that useful. But what you do say about your experience in your book, your experience working with very wealthy individuals, is that everyone worries about money. I find that fascinating. The idea that the uber wealthy, the people that we only read about and hear rumors about, are also worried about money. And that, that's, that amazes me when you compare that to, say, a single mum struggling to raise kids with very little income and lots of expenses, and there's no light at the end of the tunnel. I wonder how those two separate groups could be said to both be worrying about money. Yeah, actually, it's a really good point that you make. And I think what's really unfortunate is that money is certainly the root of a fair bit of evil in our lives. And people, when they have a lot of money, have a lot of worries about money. And actually, it's the relationship to money. I talk about what your money story is. So it's like when you, um, how you spend money, how you save money, if you save money, if your parents were people who, you know, put away every cent and recycled plastics or whatever it might be, food, you know, you always ate the leftovers. When I was a kid growing up, we always had leftovers. These days, people maybe wouldn't be so focused on doing things like that. But, I, but actually, the challenge about money comes to all of us. If you've got a lot of it, how do you teach your kids um, to look after it when it's come easy? And I think on the flip side, as, say, a single mum, it's very different. It's a scarce resource and you've got to think differently about how you save money, if you can at all. And I think that's a big challenge, I think, for everybody now. You know, we're all faced – and cost of living, somebody said to me the other day, you know, are you the right person to be talking about cost of living? I'm saying, absolutely, I'm living it. I think for all of us, the rising cost of living has been a massive issue. And whether you do have a whole lot of money or not a whole lot of money, you recognise those costs and the increase in them. And whether it's a tank of fuel you're buying, whether it's the raspberries or the blueberries at the supermarket, you're absolutely feeling it. So, But there is there is definitely a consistent thread around the challenges that money throws at us. And whether that's how you spend it, how you save it, how you provide for the next generation, how you teach your kids or other family members about it. You know, and then the other things are when you're recovering from something like divorce or financial infidelity, again, how do you how do you move forward from the mistakes that you might have made with money as well? Or if you're really unlucky, which is not uncommon, and you've had an experience like I talk a little bit about the Melissa Caddick experience, but if you've chosen a financial advisor that's dudded you, you know, you thought you were doing all the right things, you've got a big place to recover from and you've lost trust in a system as well. Yeah. And, and we're going to talk about all of those things in, a, in quite a structured way. Your book, your book lays out a structure for me, makes it really easy for me as a podcast host. We're going to talk about the three major mistakes that we make with money generally and the four steps that you suggest we take ourselves through to put ourselves on that path 
to financial security and, and not worrying about money. But let's talk a little bit before we get to that about the gravity of the problem in society. You know, we hear about it anecdotally. Sometimes we hear the, say, the average income in Australia or, you know, the medium or the mean income in Australia. And it takes a lot of people by surprise. It's a lot lower than you might think yes. it is. And then when yeah. you add that to the cost yeah. of living pressures and all sorts of things that, exp- that people experience, whether they're individuals or families or older Australians, talk to me about the quantum, the gravity of the problem that we're describing when we talk about the problem of people worrying about money. Yeah. I mean, I'd be surprised there's few people who don't worry about money. And to be honest, I don't know that I've ever met anyone who doesn't worry about it. There are certainly people who bury their head in the sand or in a bucket or in other places. And we'll come to that because I do think that's a big issue for everyone is actually, really for me, is trying to encourage people to be accountable to themselves about money because it's actually very easy to spend, <laughs> as we all know. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, yeah, I perhaps don't quite know how else to put it other than encouraging people to be more accountable about it, no matter what your age or stage in life. All right. Well, let's talk through, I think we might have just rubbed up against one of the major mistakes. If, if we were to talk through the three major mistakes, the things that you commonly see as mistakes when it comes to the way people handle their finances, talk us through those three main categories. Sure. And look, one of the things I'll say at the outset of this, I think this is a these these are issues that exist from a pretty young age. I think even young adults these days coming through sort of from early twenties upwards will make these mistakes as much as a forty or fifty year old will. And I think the three main ones for me, the first one is wearing and driving your money. So I trust that makes sense to you, but people overspend on having to wear the right clothes. It's a bit like keeping up with the Joneses. And, you know, driving the right car. And sometimes when you're younger, it's easier to have nice clothes and a nice car than own a house because it's more within reach and it keeps you perhaps feeling good about yourself. So number one is wearing and driving your own money. The second one, which I sort of was tapping into before, was the doing nothing. And I reckon this is more common than just about anything. Sadly, in a lot of relationships or people that I work with or come across in my time, there's always someone in relationship who has no responsibility around money. Point number two is the doing nothing. People make the decision not to care, not so much not care about money, but let somebody else take responsibility. And that can be a real big problem, especially if something happens like somebody dies or yes, you separate or or some other matter that takes them off their game that you could be really left, you know, unaware of actually what the cost of things are. So I think if you do nothing, your financial literacy also drops. Now, this is actually quite low in Australia. Financial literacy is actually a really significant problem in our country. And I believe that financial literacy is built by knowing how much things cost, understanding how much you earn and where that money goes. So that's my number two. And really, the third one is not understanding the baseline costs. And I do talk a lot about knowing the open your front door costs. So it's the simplest expression I've used throughout my career is what does it cost to open your front door at home? And when I ask that question, people look at me like with complete blankness. And that's like the first activity is go home and work out how much it costs to open the door. And that's whether it's rent or mortgage, electricity, then your internet, then your insurance, then you start working through some of the other things like your your subscriptions, your food, and, and it goes on. But 
there's a lack of awareness about what it genuinely costs people to open their front door. So number three is really knowing what your baseline costs are, and it's a mistake that people continue to make. They just don't. Do you want team and leadership development programs that actually work? Contact Team Guru today so we can start the conversation. All right, let me ask you some questions about these ones, Jackie. They, they make a lot of sense. So number one was wearing and driving your money. Number two is doing nothing, mm-hmm. letting someone else take responsibility, in which case our financial literacy will drop and certainly won't develop. And number three is not understanding the baseline costs of things. And the example you gave is that most fundamental of all, understanding how much it costs you to open your front door, i.e. your rent, your mortgage, electricity, water rates, everything else that goes into living somewhere. Number one, wearing and driving your money. That makes a lot of sense. And when we know some people are are drawn more to the ostentatious than others, some people are really keen to be wearing the right clothes and driving a car that people notice or at least think is respectable. And they're willing to pay a price for that. Other people like me, you can probably notice my t-shirt right now. It's one of my best. (laughs) Don't care all that much. Um, and actually, I feel I feel distant to this one. That that is not a trap that I would fall into. But I know for a lot of people it is. Now I've drawn a very sharp line there in in describing someone here as ostentatious, wanting to show off. But I'm sure not everyone who falls into this trap is ostentatious and wants to show off. It could just be poorly thought out life habits, or not just understanding where else their money might go. So what can you say, what more can you tell us about this one? And maybe along the way, answer my question, does this mean, Jackie, that if I'm in debt, I'm not independently wealthy, I have people who rely on me to survive, does that mean I should never wear a a labeled shirt and I should never drive in a nice car and I should never buy myself a new pair of shoes? Is that the message here or is there something more nuanced? Yeah, no, it's more nuanced. And in fact, I think with all decisions around money and most things in life come trade-offs. So you're very welcome to wear the labelled shirt, but there's a trade-off for you. And actually, if you go back a step, I think the difference between spending money on clothing and cars and labels, and actually it's not also ostentatious, I think it's just natural that people spend what they can because they can. But in the absence of a goal or a North Star in terms of the financial outcome they're looking for, and whether that's next year, in five years or 10 or 15 years time, without having that goal, you may as well just keep buying the labelled clothes. So people don't necessarily do it to look good. That It just makes them feel good. Mm. They're not trying to imp- yeah. impress upon anyone mm. else, but they've got that money. They don't have a goal for that money, so they mm. spend it. And, and I think that's quite reasonable. So it's a, again, it's a trap because without the goal or the eye on the future prize, you just spend it. Now, I said I didn't relate very much. Spending is easy. <laughs> spending is easy. Even yeah. for someone, I don't see yeah. myself as a spendthrift, but it is an easy thing to do. So I don't relate to number one because I, I certainly don't wear or drive my money. But number two is me all over. Do nothing. I'm a head in the sand guy. I'm someone who will keep the same super, the same insurance, the same everything just so I can not do anything. I love those emails that come and say, your XYZ is about to renew. You don't need to do anything if you want it to renew. They're my favorite type of emails. I'm a head in the sand guy. My wife does 100% of things when it comes to decisions and finances, which is terrible. I know. I understand that. But I was like that before. And as you were talking before, I thought about this. I wonder if psychologically it affected me as I was going through uni and really struggling with money like so many people do through uni. 
I came to learn very quickly, like Pavlov's dog, that anything that arrived in the mail that looked formal was bad news. It meant I owed something. It was my letter. I, I remember I went through this real stage for years during uni where every time I would keep my balance, my bank balance running so low, but if a direct deposit came out, they would honor it and put me in debt and then charge me 35 bucks every time they did it. And they would send me a letter every time they did it, which I guess was part of their statutory, but it was almost like a, you know, they, they were just like teasing me and say, we've done it to you again. You're so poor, you can't pay your bills. And because you're poor, we've penalized you 35 bucks again, you loser. So it kind of, I reckon that shaped me all those years ago to kind of stay away from that stuff. And even now I find myself recoiling from mail that looks official. So I am so ahead in the sand guy. Yeah. I actually really love this, David, because this is the classic money story that I talk about, because actually it's really important to understand upfront where you've come from. So what shaped your view of money today is actually a university experience. And I think people see bills that the few things that come in the post these days would generally think, you know, people just don't open them. And then they're like you, they get a $35 fine or something far worse Mm. because the fear of opening mail stops them from doing it. It's incredible. You get somebody like me who lives in your house and makes sure that they open those bills and gets them paid. So my fear of paying penalties is far worse than the fear of the bill. You know, I can't stand it. I certainly do not like paying fines or penalties any more than the next person, whereas somebody like you might be quite relaxed with that because you haven't had to deal with the anxiety of actually opening the envelope, right? Well, if if I never know about that that charge, then I I won't be anxious about it. Yeah. No, and, you know, I think that some people are really good at having that relaxed attitude around bills and they'll get paid and, you know, someone will will take care of it. Hopefully Mm. your wife will, in this Mm. case, pick up the pieces on those types of things. And I'm sure what would be great is if we had her on on this call tonight. We're not not inviting her in here. Uh, Yeah, yeah. It'd be like the honesty box. Anyway, I think that it's just another story that shapes our lives. You went through university that way. And if you go back to, again, living at home, like how all of us grew up, whether it was with you know, money that was, we always felt like we had what we needed or were we um, living on hand-me-downs from our siblings? You know, did you hear about money conversations at home? Most likely not because a lot of that generation didn't actually talk about money so much. And I really want to change that dynamic. I think that helping you get more comfortable about the bills coming is actually partly about normalising these money conversations in our lives as well. It's just the thing we've got to do. You know, I got once got told by a psychologist, you know, it's like stacking the dishwasher. You just got to do it every day. You've got to open the bills. You've got to pay them. Mm. Anyway. <laughs> Head in the sand. Well, that was yes. one I definitely relate yes. to. And number three is not <laughs> an understanding the baseline cost of things. I think because of number two, my head in the sand approach, I think if you were to test me at any level, I would fail miserably. I know at election time, uh, journalists like to ask politicians things like the price of milk and you know, how much power costs for the average Australian family or whatever it might be, and they catch them out 100% of the time. Most of us who aren't on a campaign trail trying to become Prime Minister, how bad or otherwise are we at understanding the true cost of things? I mean, you would think that we have some level of understanding because I walk through the shops, I see the prices, I see the bank balance go up and down. I think about those things and, and always have to some degree, but I reckon I would fail this test. Look, I'd be, I don't know, I've never met anyone who would, who would necessarily pass this test. 
I could tell you what the costs are of opening my front door and it can be quite overwhelming when you actually understand it. I think if you want to actually get anywhere financially, you've got to be really clear about what these costs are because they are an anchor or worse, they're a weight around you that holds you back from achieving whatever you want to achieve financially. You know, we talk, you might have heard about income and expense creep. So one of the things that naturally happens with people, and this may well have happened in your life, that as you've gone along in, in your business or in your career, you've earned a little bit more money each year and you spend a little bit more money each year and you earn just that little bit more, you might decide to upgrade your car because you feel like your old one's 10 years old and you decide now's the time because you earn a little bit more money. And what actually happens is your expenses continue to creep up as your income does, but there's never any real buffer being created. And that's a really common experience that's going on in every household. And I think right now in Australia in particular, well, around the world, people are looking at those costs saying, where can we shave things off? And sometimes I think you you get too big for your own budget, if that makes sense, you know. So if you're not really clear, people today have got a big mortgage with cost of living increasing quite substantially. They're getting squeezed more and more. And I, I say, once you actually understand what it costs to open your front door, what the baseline costs are for your family, have you kind of grown too big for this? Do you need to do a bit of a resize? You know, I guess it's like if you put on 10 kilos and your clothes don't fit anymore, you've got two choices. You either go buy a whole new wardrobe or you lose the 10 kilos so you fit back into your old clothes. It's kind of a bit the same with understanding the cost of opening your front door. You need to make a decision. Do I have to stay on this treadmill of working like I am because I've grown, my expenses have crept with my income? Or do I have to say, hang on, let's pause for a minute. We could live really nicely off this amount of money. Maybe we need to resize. And, you know, there have been circumstances where I've had to say to people, you can't really afford this house anymore. You know, you can't really afford this house with all. Yeah. Yeah. Really tough. Really tough. Because people caught up in uh, around houses and where they would like to live and stretch themselves. But as I say, as the income goes up, expenses tend to creep up as well. So you've got to just keep your eye on it. All right, I'm going to ask you about the four steps you recommend that we follow in a minute. But before we get there, those three mistakes, wearing and driving your money, doing nothing and not understanding baseline cost, where does the experience that we've had in our life come in? Does it come in with all of those? Because to be honest, I thought one of the mistakes you you were going to outline would be repeating the mistakes of our parents or following the pattern of our parents or something like that. So that experience that we had growing up that's so formative in every way, including financial, where does that play out in these common mistakes? Yeah, look, I think what's really important is that you acknowledge them, you own them, and you move forward. So I think that one of the most important things is actually calling out what those mistakes are. So if you're living a particular way because of your historical experience, then you need to actually identify how that's influencing spending or your earning capacity, whatever it might be, and then make a decision not to repeat that again. Of all the experience that you've had, what are the common mistakes that people repeat sort of thoughtlessly that they've inherited from growing up? Look, I think that the most simplest one is just spending money without recognizing what the consequence of that might be in its simplest form. So because you've got it, you spend it, but it's a very it's a here and now response to something. And I'll give you a great example, and I do, do share this story, that 
I met somebody, well, 30 years ago, classic sort of grew up, parents had lost a lot of money in their lifetime. They went to work, had a good job, you know, earned an executive type salary from a pretty young age, spent all of it, had all the credit cards, did what I call the Harvey Norman. You know, whenever they wanted new furniture in the house, they, you know, went out and Harvey Norman got that as well. This continued on till this person turned 40 and they got divorced and had to work out how to let that money work across two households, raising families in two households with separated with her husband. And then it was only one morning when she was in her late 40s that she was reading the Australian newspaper and she read the story about a famous Australian chef who had since passed away whose wife was homeless and she had the biggest aha moment which was, I am going to end up homeless if I keep living like this. And so we're talking about somebody in their late 40s, and and I think, David, to your question as well, it doesn't matter. You can turn your story around at any point in time. Whether you're 75 or 25, you can absolutely turn it around. But at that point in time, at 48 years of age, she decided that she needed to stop spending the way she was. She needed to cut back on wearing and driving her money, actually, and she decided to work out how to buy, save money for her first property and then ended up saving money to move into a property, not renting it, been renting her whole life. So you can turn it around, but I think recognising what that mistake has been and if it comes that late, that's when, you know, I guess that's when you deal with it. What you said just there must bring a lot of people a lot of comfort, the fact that you can turn it around at any point. It's a bit like smoking. You know, even if you've been smoking for 70 years, if you were to stop now, it's better than not stopping and your body can start yeah. to regenerate to a certain extent. And you're saying the same for being financially wise. Yeah. And look, just on that, like my father smoked his whole life. I decided very early on that I wasn't going to be a smoker. A lot of people gamble. Gambling's like a really big issue in our country. It's overwhelmingly a significant financial issue and creates a mega burden on families in this country. It's the same thing. If your dad placed a few bets, you might think it's well. okay. It's normalized. Yeah, so you've got to make the decision that it's not going to help you moving forward. All right, let's get yeah. to the good stuff then, Jackie. What are these four yeah. magical steps that we can take? <laughs> well, I'm not sure if you're going to like all of them, <laughs> um, but I, this is for everyone and you, David. <laughs> but the, but really, the first one, the first one is making yourself accountable. So this is probably the number one thing I'm spending a lot of time focusing on now, which is making sure that people, particularly those in relationships, have a handle on the financial incomings and the financial outgoings in their home. So no more burying one's head in the bucket. So being accountable is critical. And you will save yourself a whole lot of pain and suffering down the track once you're accountable around incoming and outgoing expenditure. We're drawing a lot of parallels here uh, between this and diet. There seems to be some, some pretty clear parallels. <laughs> and is this a little bit like keeping a food diary? So when you're starting your journey to exercise and losing weight, this is like keeping a food diary. Or right, what, what's the gravity of the problem here? What are we dealing with? What are your habits here and you're saying that making yourself accountable is actually keeping an eye on what we spend, understanding what it costs to open the front door to our home and everything like that. Is this the financial equivalent of a food diary? 
I would like to think that it's not as painful as a food diary. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've done one of those, but I think what's most important, it does take time to invest in getting to know what your open the front door costs are. But if you invest the time to do that, that's like a you got to sit down on a Saturday morning for two or three hours with all your bank accounts open online, credit card statements, and you've got to analyze a good month or a quarter and say, what is it really costing us? I think once you've done that, you know what that is, and you look at that and you look at your income and you say, okay, that's all right. Or, geez, we got we kind of we kind of been going out to dinner way too many nights, you know, and, and spending money on good bottles of wine, whatever it is. I think you've got to start there. And then what you say is if you're going to make a decision to reduce that, then by all means in another quarter's time, go back and look at it and do a refresh and say, where have we landed? So I don't think it's recording every day what you're spending. I, I think if you had to do that, no one would do it. But I think recognising in the first place what you're spending is good and then going back, once you've made a decision what you're going to change, where the mistakes are that you've made, and then revisiting it by all means in, a, in three months' time or six months' time. I don't think this is a, yeah, I'd, I wouldn't like to think that, keeping a diary it's going to keep anyone focused on it for any amount of time a bit unreasonable this is right. lifelong oh lifelong yeah. great all right number one is make yeah. yourself accountable no more head in the sand what's number two so the next one is really getting help so this is not about delegating or offloading this to somebody this is about getting help or building what i call your personal finance village so david this is really about having good people around you that can help you make sound financial decisions or choices. So this could be your accountant, it could be a lawyer, it could be a financial advisor, it could be a business coach, but it's the sum of all of those people in your network that help you make sound financial decisions. So actually, it's just really important to get help, particularly if you're not really focused on numbers, get help with somebody who does know, somebody that you trust. And it takes time to build trust with people about financial information. Certainly, sharing your own personal financial information. So yeah. I, I think this is number two, which is actually having the right people around you. I like the breadth of the examples you gave there because I'm thinking back to 19, 20-year-old self who didn't like opening the mail because it was only ever bad news. If you had have told that guy, get help, it's not about offloading or delegating, it's about building your personal financial village, go and talk to an accountant or whoever, I just would have laughed at you. But you know what I might have done is if you had said, all right, you're a 19-year-old uni student, go and talk to someone who's 25 and has done the uni thing and finished and got through it, understands the pain, maybe not an accountant, maybe just someone you trust, someone who's a positive role model in your life who has been through it. That might be enough. That might have been enough for me as a 19-year-old. Obviously, it gets more complex as you get older and you have property and you start thinking about retirement and you've got kids and lots of moving parts. Maybe it is time for a financial planner and certainly an accountant to get the tax done properly and all of those things. But as you say, you're building that crew around you who can give you that advice. And you think I think about it like the GP. Hopefully a lot of people, you know, who listen have had a GP that they've seen for a while. And one of the things we love about that is you go in, they've got a baseline of information so they can help you then decide what's the next most important thing you do or who's the next specialist you might need to see. We'll let you in on one little secret around this as well, which is worth sharing. One of the biggest mistakes that the wealthiest families in Australia make is that whilst they have an incredible network or their own personal finance village, they struggle to build that same village around their children. So when they know everything there is to know about their money, which is great, and they have incredible sounding boards around them, 
the people who don't necessarily are their children, so the next generation. Because they've never so had to while mum and dad are parents. around. That's right. But the reality is when you're gone, how does that next generation make financial decisions? And in fact, how do they find or build members in their personal finance village? Because that takes time to build trust and you make mistakes along the way. And if you listen to just what all your mates tell you, you could go off track pretty easily, especially when they say, hey, David, we've got a great business idea. <laughs> we think you should invest. I've got a bridge to sell you. <laughs> Beautiful. All yes, right. So number yeah, one too. is make yourself yeah. accountable. Number two is get help build your personal finance village. Number three. Number three is plan. So setting goals. So again, if your money's coming in and you've got no plan for it other than to spend it, guess what will happen? It'll get spent. So you need to set financial goals. And that can be anything. That can be paying off the credit card bill when it comes in. That can be reducing your mortgage. That can be saving for a car or saving for a particular outfit or a set of golf clubs or a new tennis racket, whatever it is. But you need to set goals. That's the bottom line. Because you might decide that you don't want to be doing this for the next 15 years. So if you don't, what are your options? You've created this big bucket load of discretionary expenditure that has no lid on it. It'll just keep growing. So you've got to set a goal. Set a plan for what you know, the financial future looks like for you. And as in the as the uninitiated here, it would make sense in my mind to have kind of like a, a short-term, medium-term and a long-term goal. Those goals, the long-term, how do I want to retire? What's the position I want to be in when I retire? And I remember when my wife and I went to see our very first financial planner, that was the first question they asked. They got us to think about the end of our working life. And that was a nice experience. A medium-term goal, you know, could be buying that home, buying the first home or someone in a different position, buying the first investment property, whatever it might be. And the short-term goal, as you say, you know, all right, I want a set of golf clubs. There's a bit of discipline to not just go out and buy it and put it on the credit card. Why don't you set yourself a <laughs> short-term goal so that you earn the right to go and buy those nice, shiny new clubs? I like it. Great. Yeah. Set goals. Yes. Yeah, so, you know, it's making those trade-offs, David, as well. Like you've got to make a trade-off if you want to get to that point where you can put a deposit down on a house. I mean, now they're estimating it, it takes five to 10 years to save for a deposit for a first home. There's a lot of trade-offs or sacrifices that need to be made in that timeline. But each time you want to spend money, you've got to have that North Star or goal so that you feel more comfortable making that choice. There's a tired old joke in there somewhere about smashed avocado, but I think that's been done to death in our country. <laughs> All right. What is number yes. four, Jackie? Educate yourself. So for me, and I, I guess I talk a little bit about financial literacy as well, and putting one's head in the sand or just relying on others is not enough. So when someone says to you, hey, mate, you should buy these shares or come and join me in this business, without having the knowledge, you can partly rely on that personal finance village, but you also have to work on educating yourself a little bit. You kind of need to know. My biggest piece of advice to people is only invest in things that you understand. So if you don't understand the share market or you don't understand tech stocks or you don't understand mining stocks, don't then don't it. invest in them. You need to understand, and likewise with business, like when people go to buy a franchise operation, you say, well, have you, let's say it's a food outlet, have you eaten there, have you seen what the traffic's like there, have you sat there during quiet days, busy days, wet days, dry days, have you kind of absorbed or immersed yourself in it before you've then made the decision to put your whole financial security on the line to, to go into that business? So critical and 
day number four. I could probably write the list, you know, this long, but I tried to bring it down to four tonight really just to say these are the ones that I think will help you, certainly. All right, Jackie. Now, before we finish up, as you know, I always ask my guests to leave us with three nuggets of gold. So people have been listening to you. They've heard your story, the work that you've done, the trials and tribulations of your own life. They've heard about the mistakes that we commonly make and the steps that you suggest. They've heard you talk about us absorbing the habits of our parents or our early life and mindlessly Mm -hmm. letting them play out in our own life without re-examining them. With all of that stuff in mind, what are those three bits of wisdom that you can leave us with tonight? I love how you do this, David, and it's, it's almost unfair, actually, to sort of bring it down to those three things. But think about where we started off tonight. I think the first real nugget is owning your money story. So just get ownership of it. Accept the mistakes you've made and make the choice to change it. And then I think actually being beware of the have more, want more trap. And then finally is really setting those goals so that you have a North Star from a financial perspective to help you make the choices that you need to get ahead. That is beautiful, Jackie. I love those three nuggets of gold. You did a brilliant job of summarizing that in three. Thank you so much for joining me on the Team Guru podcast. Oh, look, it's been a real pleasure. I've enjoyed it. Thank you. And that was Jackie Clark some seriously sage advice in there and no doubt along the way I exposed my personal naivety with regards to managing finances. Let's recap the big stuff. The three most common mistakes we make. Number one, wearing and driving your money. We all know what that looks like. And number two, doing nothing. This is me, head in the sand kind of guy. Big mistake. And number three, is not understanding the baseline cost of things. Here, Jackie hit us with that great concept. How much does it cost to open your front door? And the good stuff, the four steps we can take so our money doesn't manage us. Number one, make yourself accountable. No more head in the sand. Number two, get help. It's not about delegating or offloading. It's about building your personal finance village. Number three, plan, set goals. If you don't have goals, it's too easy to let your money, no matter how much or how little you make, just flow out the door. And number four, educate yourself. Get your head around the basics. As always, I'll share the lessons I took from my conversation with Jackie on the Lessons Learned page for this podcast. You'll find it along with the entire back catalogue of Team Guru podcasts on our website. That's teamswithans.guru forward slash podcast and don't forget to check out my other project yourstorypod.com.au and get in touch if there's someone you care about who should tell their life story this is david frizzell for team guru bye for now